scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, as we've been making note at these morning times as we come to the scripture, something that always should be on our mind as we open it, and that is that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. And so we pray now that you would um, cause it to be just that in us, that it would lighten our way, that we'd see by it all the steps that we're to take. We're grateful that you have given to us the scripture. And we pray that you would cause us then to um, not be distracted by anything else, but enable us to listen and to receive it, to welcome it into our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. I want to read um, just two verses, verses 30 and 31. John, chapter 20, please. <clears throat> Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, um, the want of God will help me just to, to take up a theme of Palm Sunday uh, this morning. John, as he writes in his gospel, at the very end, close to the end, gives us his purpose for writing. Uh, I just read it to you. He says, if you want to know why I put all this down, he says, I put this down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He lets us know that Jesus did a lot of things, some of which he included, some of which he didn't, but he included these particular things for this purpose so that we may have for us the identity of Jesus, so we may really know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, so the end of, of John's Gospel, if you read the whole of it, and I would encourage you to do that, it would be a good thing for you to do this week, uh, to read it through. But as you, as you do it, you'll see uh, his purpose, and you'll be able to ask yourself the question, so, so why did he include what he included, and how does this show me that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, that I would have life, and that is uh, eternal life. So you can read that through, that he's the Christ. The anointed one. In ancient Israel, they anointed prophets and priests and kings. And now this one, Jesus, is this anointed one. He's the prophet who has come. Not just a prophet, but the prophet who has come. He knows and speaks and is the truth. He is not a priest. He's the priest. He is the the one who intercedes for us, who represents us before God by way of sacrifice. For he is that sacrifice. And he's not just a king. David was a king. Others would come like him. But, but he is the king. He's the one who rules and, rules and reigns over all things, over all things, our hearts, over all things, the whole world, for the sake of the glory of his father and the good of his people. And so he's the anointed one. We're to know that as we read through the gospel of John and that there is life, eternal life, 
from believing uh, in his in his name. And just as John lays it out for us, we began this morning uh, in our responsive reading with some passages from the Gospel of John. As Jesus lays it out, it begins in his prologue in the very beginning, just sort of a, he wants to strike the chord of all that's going to come. And he said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just as you begin to read that, you, you, you see what John's doing here. He's trying to give us the identity of this one who's coming. He says, now, no one's ever seen God. But the only God who is at his father's side, he has made him known. Oh, all right. This Jesus is to reveal to us, make the father, God, known to us. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to, he's going to say that he has the very name that God has. He's going to say that he is the I am. You remember when Moses asked God, who are you? God said to him way back in the Exodus, he said, well, When the people ask who I am, tell them, I am. (laughs) I just am. I've always been, always will be, I am. I don't need anything. I just am. When were you am? Always, right? (laughs) I've always been, I am. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for which you go through. I am the good shepherd who watches over your your souls. I am the resurrection and the life. There isn't any other life apart from me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There isn't any other way to the Father except through me. There isn't any other truth. Nothing else is reliable. I am the one who gives life. You see, I'm the true vine. If you're not attached to me, you're dead. And then then signs John would give. And and he picks particular ones that he would lay out to reveal the identity of Jesus. And he begins by this wonderful miracle of Jesus turning water to wine, the richest of all. To say something new is here. It won't fit in the old. It's something new is here, you see. And then he heals this royal official's son from a distance and he shows the fact that he's, he has power over disease and, and illness. And, and then there's this man who's at the, this pool in Bethesda, by, it's called Bethesda, and, and, and he thinks that by going into the pool when the, when the waters are stirred that he'll be healed and, and he never can get there. And so Jesus comes and he, and he heals him to show that he is the Christ really and he's the Lord really of the Sabbath. He's the one who brings healing, you see, even on this even on this Sabbath day. And then there's a bunch of people that follow him and, and they're hungry and so he feeds them with just a little bit. He can take just a few loaves and fish and feed thousands. Why? Because he's, he's the bread of life. And then there's this man who was born blind and, and he gives him sight because Jesus is really the light of, of, of the world. And he can walk on water and, and then he sees this man, learns of him his friend who's dead and he goes to his tomb and he raises him from the dead because he's the resurrection of life and John says think about this who is this Jesus of Nazareth and he says I know who he is he's the Christ and he gives life that's who he is he's bread and he's light that's who he is he's the way the truth and the life you see 
That's who he is. He can take those who are sick and heal them. He can take those who are dead and bring them back. That's who he really is. That's this Jesus. So, so I want you to know that he's the Christ, the prophet, has the truth, is the truth. He's the priest. He intercedes for us. He's our sacrifice. He's the king. He rules over life and death. And so you can believe in him. And if you believe in him, there's life really in his name. Now today, as we've said, and you can tell from these lilies that are starting to work on my nose even now, uh, I always know it's Palm Sunday. I mean, it's just always my eyes water, and it's just a wonderful time. Ever since I was a kid, sitting in the second pew with my father's arm around me, uh, I could smell the lilies, and I go, oh, it's Palm Sunday, and my eyes were dry. Uh, but it's this, this time, Palm Sunday, and it's, as we said, the last... Uh, Sunday in Lent, it continues through this week, Lent, but, but it begins this Holy Week. Now, every week for a Christian is holy, and every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection, but historically, Christians have set aside a Sunday to think about this, and so, with all those who have come before us, all those with us today, and all who come, I trust, in the future, well, we'll think about this Palm Sunday day, this, what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, into uh, Jerusalem. And I want to take up this 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 uh, entry that we have in John's gospel and, and really ask John the question that he says he answers. And that is, why did you include this? And he would say, well, I included it so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that you have life by believing in his name. And he'd go, all right, well, let's think about it in that regard. Now, we could say that, that John included this because it, it works in the whole story, the whole, the whole uh, life of Jesus, if you will, all the other um, gospel writers, witnesses to the gospel better, uh, have it. Matthew, Mark, Luke and have it. And John does as well. Now, there is something, though, that we realize that John doesn't include everything that all the other accounts have. And he includes some things. Much of what he includes isn't in the other gospel witnesses. And it's because he's wrong or they're wrong. Or that he's more right than they are. He just simply has a different purpose. He's, he's lining up some other things that they haven't included for his particular, his particular purpose. Matthew has a purpose in what he lays out. And Mark has a purpose in what he lays out. And Luke has a purpose in what he lays out. And, and John has a purpose in what he lays out. And John is explicit about that. So we see that. And so my question is, what's here in this particular account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem on that day that's somewhat or at least unique to John. They all have crowds, at least multitudes. Jesus, I mean, John has a great, a large crowd, verse 12. And no doubt there was a large crowd. We know from historical accounts, at least later on in the 60s and 70s, Josephus, the historian, says that during that time, during the Passover, there were 2.7 million pilgrims in Jerusalem. And that didn't even count what he called the defiled ones. So that's a lot of people. He said during that time, there were a quarter of a million lambs slaughtered, killed uh, during the Passover night. So lots of people were there. We don't know exactly how many gathered as Jesus entered, but it's from this 2.7 million, even if he was only half right, million or so uh, there uh, to gather as Jesus is entering uh, Jerusalem at at that time. So they all make note of the crowd. Um, But one of the things John doesn't make 
too much uh, or any really to do about is this donkey, this colt that uh, Jesus uh, rides on other than he makes note of it that he rides on one. I, I suppose, I don't know, I did as a kid, I heard lots of sermons about how they acquired the donkey and all of that. But John just seems like it's not that important to him at all. He just says in verse 14 of John 12, um, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, and then quotes a passage from Zechariah that we'll come to um, in a minute. And one thing that's really unique in John's account is that he's the only one who mentions that the branches were from palm trees. I know, I did the same thing this week when I read all of them and I was circling things and doing what I do. And I said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, Matthew and Mark mention branches. Luke doesn't mention them at all. He mentions the cloaks that they put down on the ground and on the donkey, but not anything about the branches being waved. But, 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 but here it is that John mentions palms. And so on my little outline, as I was writing down my legal pad, I wrote palms and I wonder what that means. I wonder why he put that in there. How could that be significant at all in the midst of this? And then another unique thing that John has is that he mentions Lazarus. That shouldn't surprise us because he's the only one of all the gospel witnesses that uh, that note the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's only in John, and it and it's right before it's in chapter eleven of uh, of, of of John. And so by the time we get to chapter twelve, it's still fresh, you see. And, and that seems to be something very significant in in this whole episode on Palm Sunday. The people are uh, wondering about. About Lazarus, you see, they're they're wondering if Lazarus is going to be there, and 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 all of that, and 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 what about what about what about Jesus? You know, it's fascinating, isn't it, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and 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 that's the thing that seems to tip his enemies against him, because that's when they, in earnest, begin to think we got to kill this guy. And not only Jesus, but they have to kill Lazarus too. Because, you know, Lazarus is, is, is kind of the witness to all of this. We get rid of Lazarus and if we could kill him and kill Jesus too, then, then we'll solve this whole problem. I always think it's rather funny that they think they can kill Lazarus. I mean, his history is that he keeps bouncing back. And, 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 and kill Jesus who's the one who raised him. I, I just think that's always fascinating. To think, oh, we now we can solve this problem. We just kill these guys. One who can raise the dead and the other who's been raised. I feel a little bad for Lazarus. You know, if Lazarus had been raised today, I mean, he'd have a mini-series, right? You know, heaven is real. People would be asking him all about, all about it. What was it like to be dead? Did you really want to come back? I mean, you can just imagine the questions that would be asked of Lazarus. We have nothing. Because none of that was important. What was important was there was this guy named Jesus who could raise the dead. So John includes that. But, but this is something that everyone's wondering about, uh, about Lazarus. You can see um, Verse 17 in John 12, the crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus from out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. 
can only imagine. The guy that raised Lazarus from the dead is coming. And so let's go see him and go see who he is. And also we see in, in John this uh, unique verse 19. So, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Really, the meaning of that is we see that we're gaining nothing. They were talking to each other. <laughs> you know, you see, you're, we're not gaining anything. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, we note the frustration in one of the other accounts where, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, tell your disciples to stop, you know, praising this. And he says, well, I can't. If even if I did, the stones would cry out. But here we see the frustration, almost the anger of the Pharisees, we've tried to stop this guy. We've tried to stop this guy. We've tried to stop this guy. And now, look, everybody is after him. And so you get the sense of their frustration um, and what they will do in response to all of that. But here's where I want to camp for a moment. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, on the one hand, if you're a Bible reader, especially a reader of these gospel accounts, you realize it's not surprising that they didn't get it. Many times we read through the scriptures as Jesus says something, we find that his disciples didn't understand what he was really talking about. Sometimes they would go talk with each other about these things, uh, and other times he would explain further. But, but, but many times they didn't understand uh, what Jesus was talking about here. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. You get the impression, because it's right after verse 15, verse 16 is, that uh, they're wondering about why he sat on a donkey, why he came like that. Um, verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but then they remembered that these things had been written about him, that is in Zechariah, and had been done to him. And so, w- wondering all about that. Now, as I mentioned, it, it wasn't surprising. Back in um, John chapter 2, where Jesus is recorded to have um, um, gone into the temple and had f- forced out those who were um, disgracing the temple, not using it as a house of prayer, as it was designed to be uh, by God. And then he said to them, this is verse 18 of John 2. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us uh, for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and I'll raise it up and, 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 and will you raise it up in three days? But he, this is sort of John parenthetically putting to us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, when it happened, they didn't... Can you live with them for a minute? They saw these things, they heard him say these things, they just sort of had them in their minds. They were compelled to continue to follow him, but they didn't understand everything about him. And then they saw it. After he was glorified, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, they looked back and they go, I get it now. He's the temple. Everything that happened in the temple happened in him. The sacrifices, he was the sacrifice. The priest, he was the priest. The temple, the presence of God. He's the presence of God among. I get it now. 
and Jesus was the temple. But they didn't see it right then. Something we'll take up on Monday, Thursday was Jesus coming to Peter to wash his feet. And even Jesus said to Peter, chapter 13, verse 7, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. You see, That's why I, I tell people all the time, you've got to read the Bible backwards. Right? You've got to read it backwards. You've got to read it from back to front. Uh, because if you read it from front to back, oh, it's fun, it's exciting, if you can hang on. But, but you have all these questions. If you, if you don't know how it ends, you keep wondering, what's this about? And what's this about? And what's this about? And what's this about? You get to the end, you go, oh, okay. I get it now. I see it now. Right? As the women of the church have been reading through um, the scripture this year uh, together, uh, many of them have said, oh, it's so good to get to the New Testament. <laughs> Why? Because you see what's concealed and the old is revealed and the new. And, and you see that, you see. Uh, and it's good to, to be able to do that. And so you so much more appreciate what you've read once you know how it's really going to end. Now, just think about this. Isn't that still true? We know a lot. We've been told a lot. We've, we, we, we get crucifixion, the resurrection, the coming of the spirit and all that. But we still know that there's stuff that's going to come. And we're still living in a sense, a life that we don't quite understand everything. Don't you wonder about certain things? How could this be? How could that be? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? But yet we're compelled to follow him. Why? Because we've seen enough. We know enough compels us to continue to follow him, to continue to, to trust him. And so that's where they were on this particular day. They saw it, they took it in, but yet they didn't understand all of these things. But, but later they... Later they did. I mean, the crowds kind of got it right. I mean, they were explosive uh, at that moment in time. You, you get this sense they were geared for something. I mean, here they were all together uh, in Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and yet they were occupied, if you will, by Rome. Rome still controlled them. And, and so here they were celebrating. This is fascinating that Rome let them do this. Celebrating a time in their history when God had delivered them from oppression. When God had delivered them from slavery. So that's what the Passover was all about. And here they were going to celebrate that while Rome looked on. And if you would ask the Jews, well, what are you doing? They would have said, well, we're celebrating when our God came and delivered us from, from the hand of the oppressors. And if you're probably too arrogant, if you're a Roman, but you might scratch your head and go, hmm. What does that mean? So here they were pumped for that. And then Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Then everybody knew who this Jesus was. They also knew the drama of the Pharisees. They knew that there was a contract done on Jesus' head. Notice from uh, verses 56 and 57 in chapter 11 of John's gospel. John wrote, now they were looking for Jesus and saying to one, to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he'll, he'll not come to the feast at all? Then verse 57, now the chiefs, chief priests and the Pharisee had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. I mean, you can just see all of this. And again, fascinating. Jesus almost always shunned attention. I mean, he would do these great miracles, just like he raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and, and he went into hiding after that. 
But now, he's going to expose himself to all these people. There he is, right out in public. And so all of this taking place in the midst of this. And they begin to sing. They begin to sing from uh, Psalm 118, the great Hillel. These, these passages of the Old Testament that they sang during the great feast days from um, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And here they are in Psalm 118. And they're, they're, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They add to that even the king of Israel. And so what they're seeing as Jesus comes in is this king. Now they take these palm branches and they begin to wave them which was completely unprecedented for the Passover season. They waved palm branches during the Feast of Tabernacles, but not a Passover. Nobody ever did that before. No, palm branches were easy for them to get. I mean, they just cut them down. Uh, it was, this was easy to imagine when I lived in Florida. Uh, there were palm branches you could just get. We import them on our Palm Sundays. If you see our kids with palm branches today, you know they came from somewhere else. But there, they were readily available. But why did they do that? And why does John mention it in the midst of this? And what did that cause them to understand later? Well, palm branches, by the time of the days of Jesus, were a nationalistic symbol of military victory. It had come about from the second century B.C. when uh, Judas Maccabees um, defended and delivered his people from the Syrians. Not everything has changed uh, from the Syrians. And so um, you might remember they had, the Syrians had desecrated the temple. And uh, Judas Maccabees, Maccabees means a hammer, came in in a great military victory, cast them out and gained freedom for his people for that time. And they had a great parade. And, after, and during that parade, they picked up palm branches and began to wave. And from that time on, these palm branches became known as this symbol for Israel of victory. And here they are declaring Jesus to be the king and waving these palm branches with a sense that he's finally come. The Messiah has finally come and he's going to bring this great military victory. He's going to overturn Rome. And there's a sense in which Jesus said, not exactly. Not exactly. If I were going to do that, I'd enter in on a war horse. But I'm on a donkey. What other nation is worried about a king sitting on a donkey? It even looks funny. These weren't big animals in the days of Jesus. You can only imagine that uh, sometimes an adult's foot might even get close to the ground riding one of these things. Now, the, the pictures I've seen... Jesus riding the donkey. Uh, you're supposed to smile at that. Uh, the pictures I've seen of Jesus riding the donkey, right? Uh, are ones his, he just, he's huge compared to the donkey. I mean, his feet are hanging over. And, and you want to think, well, what, why would Rome be worried about that? Is a guy on a donkey, a colt. Oh. But they should have been worried because Jesus was saying in the midst of not to come to make war, but I'm come to make peace. But I'm going to deal with the real enemy. And the real enemy isn't Rome. And so John, figure that out, quotes Zechariah Turn. 
quickly to Zechariah, Old Testament, towards the end, chapter 9. Not Zephaniah, but Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. This part of Zechariah is a prophetic word uh, concerning that which is to come. So Zechariah 9, 9 is what John quotes. And again, remember, when we read a quote in the New Testament of the Old Testament, it isn't always the complete quote. The reason is they didn't have chapter and verse. They couldn't say Zechariah 9, 9 or Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. They just said, here's a bit of it. Go back and read it. Here's a bit of it. This is where that comes from. And so you always go back to the Old Testament passages to see the whole of it. So just a couple of verses, Zechariah 9, 9, and John just quotes a bit of this. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of, I'm sorry, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So you get, again, same kind of atmosphere, shouting and all of that and rejoicing for Israelites. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to rivers, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, here's, here's what's happening in the midst of this. Jesus is coming. He's saying, I know you're waving these branches you want me to beat up on Rome, but that is, Rome isn't the enemy. I'm going to come and really fight the real enemy. And so I'm coming to bring peace between you and God and ultimately with each other. But I'm coming to bring peace. And here's how I come first in righteousness, bringing salvation, in righteousness with salvation. You see, the problem is you lack righteousness. The problem is this righteousness isn't reigning through people on the earth. So I have to bring it, you see. And I'm the righteous one. I am righteous in and of myself. And I'll bring righteousness. A day will come when everything in the new heavens and the new earth will reflect the righteousness of God. All will be right. But how am I going to bring righteousness where there isn't? Well, I've come to be righteousness. I've come to live under the law and to obey perfectly. Not because I need it, because I'm righteous, but because you need it, because you're unrighteous. And if you want to have peace, you must be righteous before God. And you haven't got it, so I'm going to bring it. And I'm going to bring it to you, you see. In righteousness with salvation. Here he comes the king of glory. And so, let me just give a couple of verses to to look through here very quickly. First in Romans in chapter 5. In verse 19. This comes, if you're familiar with this passage of Romans 5, beginning with verse 12, especially in in one of the um, most revealing passages for us in the New Testament. But speaking of Jesus and us, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many were made sinners, that is us and everyone else. So by the one man's obedience, that is Jesus, his righteousness, the many, that is the saved, will be made righteous. Okay, let me do that again. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, us and all people, So by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus comes and he says, I'm coming in righteousness for you to be your righteousness. That my righteousness may 
stand for, cover your unrighteousness. And then 1 Corinthians and chapter 1 and verse 30. And because of him, that is God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So from whence cometh our righteousness? It comes from Jesus. He gives it to us. His righteousness. We are not. He is. We can't. He did. So his righteousness covers us. We're to be clothed with his righteousness. Second Corinthians and chapter 5 and verse 21. Get another summary verse. For our sake, he, the he there is God the Father, for our sake, he made him, the him is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, he was righteous, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, he was righteous, he knew no sin. We are unrighteous, all we know is sin, and yet he became sin for us that we might become righteous before God, the righteousness of God. And then Paul's own personal testimony in Philippians and chapter 3, in verse 9. I'm beginning in the middle of verse 8 to catch a sentence here. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is a righteousness that comes from my own obedience to the law, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. John says, I want you to know that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. It's the righteousness that comes by faith. That God declares us, because of Jesus, righteous before him. Sometimes we use as a profession of our faith this from the Heidelberg Catechism. I ask this question. How are you right with God? And you all answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all the commandments of God. And of never having kept any of them. And even though I'm still inclined toward evil. Nevertheless. Without my deserving it at all. Out of sheer grace. God grants and credits to me. The perfect satisfaction. Righteousness and holiness of Christ. Listen to this. Because it's true. As if I had never sinned. Nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient. As Christ was obedient for me. I love these old dead guys. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And there was a day that came to John and the others and it dawned on them and they go, Oh, that's why the donkey, he was righteous. That we might become the righteousness of God. And then Zechariah also said, He came humbly on a donkey. How else could you come on a donkey, right? 
Why is it that that uh, boys in their senior in high school going to the prom rent the best car they can get, right? Because they don't want to show up in a donkey, you know. Because what girl would be impressed with a donkey? And so, so it, it, who could be impressed with a donkey? That's the very point of it. How could I fight you, Rome? I'm sitting on a donkey, right? You are not the problem. I haven't come to deal with you so much. There's a real problem, and the real problem is sin. That's really what's enslaving my people. That's really what's destroying my people. It isn't you. It's, it's, it's sin, you see. That's what's destroying them. And so he comes in humility to give himself. What did he say? I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Or he who was rich became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. He gave himself. I have to tell you, I always wonder, when did it dawn on them? Have you ever been in a situation where you've done something really stupid but you didn't know it until later? And then you go, like, you're by yourself and you feel yourself getting embarrassed. Right? Nobody's even around. You go, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. It, it's kind of just, finally you see it and you go, oh man. I wonder when they were sitting around and I wonder who the first one was and went, wait a minute. I get it. You know how confused we were on that Sunday before Easter, you know, and all that before Jesus rose from the dead and we, we, we were wondering, what's on the donkey? What's about that? I get it. Have you ever read Zechariah? Oh, righteous, humble, When did it finally dawn on you? When did it finally dawn on you that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would have life by believing on his name? Now, some of you, like me, I can't remember not believing in Jesus, and you might be thinking, I I grew up in all of this, but, but yet I still know in the context of my own life, there have been times... And as I get older, they seem to be coming more frequently when I go, Oh, I see that. Oh, I see that. Oh, I see that. And these new things, these old things that become new, dawn on us. And I love the word dawn. You know, you're, I, I do a lot of early morning breakfast and I sit there usually looking out a window and it's dark. And then by the time I leave after breakfast, it's light. And I think, how'd that happen? You know, it just sort of, just... When did it dawn on you? For others of you, it may have hit you over the head like a two by four. You go, I remember exactly when I, when I got it. I know exactly when that moment took place. And we need to realize that while we believe, you see, this truth is still dawning, it's still coming, it's still growing, it's still new, it's still there's still things that come to us there's still things we don't know, even the Apostle Paul on one occasion said that right now I see, how I I memorized this in the King James so I don't know how it is in the other versions, but but I see through a glass darkly it's a a glass, I'm seeing, I know know there's something in it I know it's good and I can see it and and all that, I should drink it, but but it's still a little hazy, and that's still the way life is isn't it? I mean, we, we wonder, don't we? about what's happening why aren't more saved why is the world the way that it is those are the great questions of the prophets they're still questions of us 
But yet we're still compelled to believe. Why? Because we've seen it. We know, we know that he's the Christ, the Son of God. We know there's no other way to life other than by him. And I wonder about those disciples. They they had to sit on this for a while. Then it dawned on them. And the same is true for us. We know much more. We see much more. We have the resurrection of Jesus. And yet still we're waiting to, to see it. But we're compelled still to believe. And so we're just sitting with this. Some things we know. Some things we wonder. Sometimes we feel like the ancients who said, I have faith, but my faith is seeking understanding. And our faith is always seeking more and more and better understanding. Do we believe? Yes. Oh, but help our unbelief. Even in the midst of it, you see. What helps us? Well, this. On the day, the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my, my body given for you. I'm righteous, my righteousness for you. You're sinners, I'll take it. That you may be forgiven. The same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thank this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle writes, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that he came to bring peace. He came in righteousness and he came in humility. In his righteousness, he obeyed that we might have his righteousness. In his humility, he gave his life that we might be forgiven our sins. He is the Christ the Son of God. And there is life by believing upon His name. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. None of us, no one in history, could have thought that one up. That the king of glory would come on a donkey. No one would have thought up that the king of glory would be nailed to a cross. And yet that's it, isn't it? That he's come in righteousness, humility, to bring peace by way of his own death and his resurrection. And we give you thanks. I pray, Lord, for any who have yet to have this truth dawn on them or hit them over the head with a two by four, however it would come, that you would grant grace on this morning to change hearts and to enable them to see it and to believe For those of us who do, I pray that you would strengthen, deepen that faith. That on this day, we would leave this place more convinced, more trusting that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And that life has been received. 
by faith. So now I pray you'd take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would know that Jesus is alive, that he's right here with us. And that by coming to this table, that in only the way that Jesus can, that he will bring blessing to us. And this I pray in Jesus' name.